This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Good evening and welcome to Rand. I'm Jeffrey Wasserman, Vice President and Director of Rand Health. Our speaker for tonight's policy forum on sleep's role in society and policy is Dr. Wendy Troxell. Wendy is a behavioral and social scientist at RAND and an adjunct professor of psychiatry and psychology at the University of Pittsburgh. She is a licensed clinical psychologist and a certified behavioral sleep medicine specialist. Her research focuses on understanding the links between close relationships and sleep. She was the founding director of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine's training program in behavioral sleep medicine at the University of Pittsburgh, and she remains on its advisory board. She was also featured in the National Geographic documentary, Sleepless in America. Wendy, I'll now turn things over to you. Thanks so much. Well, it's really a pleasure to be here tonight, and I am hoping that uh, you'll leave here tonight and I'll have cured all that ails you, or at least you'll be sleeping a little bit better. And yes, I promise I will, uh, even though I'm going to be talking about some of my research on the role of sleep in society and policy, I will end with some individual sleep tips so that you can go home and sleep uh, better tonight. All right, for some background on our need for sleep and the consequences when we don't get it. The National Sleep Foundation recently released new recommendations for the optimal duration of sleep um, across different age groups. And for the most part, these new recommendations are not vastly different from the old recommendations. So the magic number for most adults remains around eight hours per night, with increasing duration of sleep recommended for teenagers and even more so for children and infants. What has definitely not changed with or without the new recommendations is that most of us are simply not sleeping enough. Only one in three adults regularly sleeps at least the minimum seven hours of sleep per night. And the situation is even more bleak for teenagers, where only about 15% sleep at least eight hours per night on a regular basis. The truth is we live in a chronically sleep-deprived society. And instead of having a show of hands, just look around you. If not yourself, the person sitting on one side of you or the other is likely to be sleep deprived. And tonight, unfortunately, I'm here to tell you that, you know, sleep is a fundamental biological need, just like our need for food or water. And yet when we sacrifice such a fundamental biological need, our bodies, our brains, and our behavior suffers. And this exacts a tremendous cost to our collective public health. So just by way of example, sleep problems are not only a symptom of virtually every known mental health disorder, but they can also predict the onset of new mental health disorders, including depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and even suicide. Sleep problems are also independent risk factors for a host of major public health problems, including contributing to the obesity epidemic, cardiovascular disease, and diabetes. Lack of sleep also has profound consequences for our ability to think and perform at our best. So in laboratory studies in which they bring 
um, healthy human subjects, mostly college students, into the laboratory, and they restrict their sleep to five hours or less per night for four to five nights um, only. Those healthy human subjects will perform on reaction time tasks as if they were legally drunk. Yes. <laughs> so, And there are real-world sort of extrapolations of these findings. Consider that over 100,000 motor vehicle accidents per year are caused by drowsy driving. You also might want to consider this the next time you're in the operating room. You might want to question how long was your doctor's previous shift. Also consider it when you're sharing the road with trucks. The costs of sleep disorders are also exorbitant. An Institute of Medicine report estimated that at a minimum, uh, the costs associated with sleep disorders are in the hundreds of billions of dollars. And that's likely an underestimate because we know that sleep disorders so often go undiagnosed and undetected. Now, for most of us, when we think about the factors that influence our sleep, we tend to think about individual factors uh, that are implicated. And it's certainly true that there are numerous individual factors that influence both the quality and quantity of our sleep. And this would include our genetic makeup, certain lifestyles or behaviors that we're likely to engage in or not engage in that may either be healthful for sleep or counterproductive. But beyond these individual factors, it's also true that our broader social environments also are implicated in our sleep. And I'm going to be talking about some of my research in this area tonight. So let me give you some context for thinking about this. I like to think of sleep as an inherently social behavior. Just like Jeffrey said, some of you will go home and sleep with another human being. And when I mean that it's a social behavior, I mean that, well, first of all, we as humans are social beings. So we rely on our social relationships to provide a sense of safety and security, which is particularly important at night when, at least from an evolutionary basis, we're vulnerable to potential threats from the environment. And this kind of reliance on our social relationships to provide a sense of safety and security really becomes hardwired in our brain. So feelings of safety and security should promote healthy sleep, whereas the opposing states of vigilance and anxiety are kind of antithetical to the sleep state and would interfere with healthy sleep. In my work, which considers um, the interface between our social environments, our sleep, and the implications for health, I think about how various social environments, ranging from our closest relationships, including our bed partners, to the neighborhoods in which we live or the broader cultures in which we reside, contribute to such feelings of safety and security on the one hand, or vigilance and anxiety on the other hand, and how ultimately this affects our sleep as well as our downstream health. I'd like you to consider this. Most of us, if we're lucky, we spend about one-third of our lives in bed, and that's if we're achieving the recommended sleep per night. But just uh, work with me on this one. For that critical and significant amount of time in bed, most of us engage in this very important health behavior with a bed partner. And yet the vast majority of sleep research has tended to view sleep as an isolated behavior. My research in many ways represents a paradigmatic shift in this traditional isolated view of sleep by considering how both the presence and quality of our social relationships influences our sleep and vice versa, how our sleep influences the quality of our relationships. So we published a study showing that women who were stably married across the 11-year course of this study 
had better sleep efficiency, which is simply a metric of how restful your sleep is, as compared to women who were stably unmarried throughout the 11-year period or those who had lost or gained a partner in that same interval. But it's also important to know that it's not just the presence of a partner that matters, but it's the quality of the relationship. So we've also shown that happily married women are at lesser risk for having insomnia as compared to their unhappily married counterparts or unmarried or unpartnered women. And finally, extending this work, we've shown that these apparent benefits of living in a married household also seem to extend to the children living in the home. This was a study of adolescent sleep patterns, and we found that adolescents from two-parent households had better sleep efficiency as compared to adolescents from single-parent households. And these findings were evident even after we controlled for a host of known risk factors that are correlated both with family structure as well as with sleep, including the socioeconomic status of the family and the adolescent's mental health. Now, clearly, there are many factors that influence adolescents' sleep, um, and these are just important findings to highlight the important role of close relationships on both adult and children's sleep. Beyond these social environmental factors, it's also important to consider how policies affect our sleep. And many of you in the room may be wondering, you know, what's a girl like me doing in a place like this? And what are really, what's the intersection between a sleep scientist and a a policy organization? And so I want to try to elucidate for you some of the key intersections between sleep science and policy. And perhaps the easiest way to do that is by showing some examples and identifying populations that are at high risk for sleep deprivation and disorders, and then um, identifying associated policies. So in particular, we know that there are critical periods of human development that are associated with um, high levels of sleep deprivation and sleep disorders, and this would include adolescence. Adolescence is a highly dynamic uh, period of brain development, wherein um, adolescents' brains are biologically, biologically predisposed to favor later bedtimes and later wake times. At the same time that adolescents' brains are changing to become more night owls, our high school start times become exceedingly earlier and earlier. So elementary school students might start school at 9 a.m., despite the fact that they are naturally up closer to 6 or 7 a.m., and we have the high school students getting on buses anywhere between 6.30 and 7 a.m., when their brains are really not even online and awake until much later in the morning. So the policy is in direct conflict with the biology. We can also think about policies that govern shift work, including required rest periods and recovery periods. And this is critically important not only for considering the workers' occupational health and safety, but also our collective public health and safety. At the broader social level, we also know that there are pervasive racial and ethnic and socioeconomic disparities in sleep. And this may be at least in part due to historic practices that we that still linger today that have led to neighborhood segregation and disadvantaged neighborhoods uh, being less having physical environmental characteristics that are not conducive to healthy sleep, as well as the perception that the neighborhood is unsafe, which would also interfere with sleep. 
in Pittsburgh, we're actually, uh, we were just funded by the National Institute of Health to conduct a natural experiment in two distressed neighborhoods, one of which is undergoing a dramatic neighborhood revitalization as a result of a major policy initiative. The other is not. So we're examining whether changing the face of this neighborhood in terms of improving the aesthetics, improving the housing, hopefully increasing the neighborhood cohesion and safety, whether that also has a measurable impact on the resident's sleep and obesity-related health. Finally, when it comes to our nation's military, sleep policies across the DOD are not only implicated and important for considering service member health and readiness, but they're clearly also a matter of our national security. And it's this last topic that I'd like to focus on for the remainder of my talk today. As we have just recently released and finished a report, um, which is a two-year project funded by the Department of Defense to study the prevalence and consequences of sleep problems in the U.S. military, and we also provided the first-ever comprehensive review of existing sleep-related policies across the Department of Defense. This report will actually be released um, within the month, and uh, so tonight I'm just going to present you with some of the insights uh, from this project. We conducted a survey uh, of approximately 2,000 U.S. service members across all service branches and components and found that there was an exceedingly high prevalence of insufficient sleep duration among service members. If I can just call your attention to the red pie bar, that indicates that one-third of service members reported that, on average, they slept five hours or less per night. Now, recall from the beginning how I mentioned that this is the same category that in experimental studies has been associated with cognitive and performance decrements that are the equivalent of being legally drunk. And this is concerning um, in terms of the implications for operational effectiveness and readiness. Furthermore, we found that the sleep that service members were getting was generally of poor quality. Up to, almost 50% of service members reported clinically significant sleep disturbances, and about 20% reported that they had used prescribed sleep medications in the past month. So such high prevalence of sleep problems and use of medications is certainly something that we should be paying attention to, um, given that service members are a population that must function at a high level and under highly stressful and high-risk environments. Our research also identified a number of factors, both at the policy or system level, as well as at the individual level, that may contribute to such high prevalence of sleep problems in service member populations. In particular, our work identified that military culture, which has traditionally undermined the need for sleep, and in fact, there has been this tendency to view sleep deprivation as a badge of honor that this is a major contributor to the problem. As this quote by George Orwell states, good people sleep peaceably in their beds at night only because rough men stand ready to do violence on their behalf. So such sentiments such as these can have significant consequences uh, for service members' sleep and can lead service members to not recognize their own need for sleep. And it can also have lasting implications for the service members' sleep even after they return from war because it's this conditioned response that one ha must be vigilant both day and night. Our research also identified a number of individual factors, including lack of knowledge and certain lifestyle 
lifestyles that are endemic in military culture, particularly among younger service members, that are counterproductive for sleep. Um, in particular, many service members were simply not aware of ex existing sleep-related policies, and this is partially due to the lack of a centralized repository for sleep-related policies across the Department of Defense. Also, as I mentioned, particularly among service members, um, this is a population that is known to engage in behaviors such as use of violent video games um, and also excessive consumption of highly caffeinated energy drinks and products, both of which are um, uh, not particularly helpful for sleep. Our report includes 16 actionable recommendations uh, to the Department of Defense to promote sleep health uh, among U.S. military. And our hope is that by raising awareness of the vital importance of sleep, we can shift these cultural attitudes which have traditionally undermined sleep and instead make it clear that sleep is an operational imperative rather than something to be sacrificed. And I'd just like to mention some other ongoing work that I have that's funded by the National Institute of Health in which I extend this focus on sleep in the military to also consider the consequences of deployment on the sleep and overall functioning of uh, military spouses. Um, and again, when you get back to this notion of safety and security versus vigilance or anxiety, uh, these are critical um, affective states that are very salient uh, for military families in the aftermath of war. Because while there's joy at the reunion uh, with the service member, there's also tremendous stress and uncertainty as one reintegrates. And nighttime is a vulnerable period. Um, and so this is an understudied uh, pathway that may be implicated in the overall health and functioning of military families. Collectively, these studies and their findings highlight the critical but often neglected intersection between sleep science and policy. At RAND, my colleagues and I are actively engaged in work with all of these populations that are at high risk for sleep deprivation and disorders, including adolescents, truck drivers, as I mentioned, the study uh, of neighborhood disadvantage, and also, of course, our ongoing work with the military. As a, at a societal level, I would encourage all of you to encourage policymakers to advocate for policies that are aligned with robust sleep science as you recognize these critical intersections. And as I promised, I will also leave you with some tips at the individual level. So the first is to maintain a consistent sleep-wake schedule. And I encourage you to focus primarily on your wake-up time instead of your bedtime, which is often not the way people think about this. Um, and the reason why I say focus on your wake time is that wake-up time is the single most important uh, factor that influences our internal biological rhythm. So it really sets the metronome so our brain knows when to be alert and awake and then when to prepare for sleep at night. The second, keep the bed for sleep and sex only. And this is a notion um, known as stimulus control, and it simply is based on the principle that as human beings, we learn based on associations. And so you want a strong learned association between the bed and sleep, not the bed and all the other sorts of activities that people uh, may engage in at night. When you have such a strong learned association, you're more likely to fall asleep and stay asleep deeply and quickly. 
Third, schedule a nightly wind-down routine. Now, it's not just toddlers who need this. We all need this. We can't just rush into bed from our busy daily lives. Finding a time to unplug, unwind, and relax. Ideally, doing something pleasurable with your family or your friends so that you can really set the brain up for a quiet and restful night of sleep. Fourth, Worry and stress are killers of a good night of sleep. And you know what? We all worry at some point, and stress is rather ubiquitous. So finding ways to manage that and finding ways to avoid having the brain think that the bed is the time where, you know, it can go hog wild and make all those lists that you didn't have time to think about during the day. So if you're a worrier, I encourage you to schedule a daily practice of 15 minutes a day where you let your brain Go hog wild, write down those lists, write down those worries, and then shut the book at the end of the 15 minutes so that your brain learns that there's a time for worry and then there's a time for bed. Other strategies that are known to be effective to manage stress include all sorts of physical activity, yoga, meditation, mindfulness. Find what works for you and what you'll regularly engage in and practice. And finally, and this Final tip actually relates to the stimulus control, number two, um, but it is such a problem in our society that it deserves a special call out. Keep technology, all of it, out of the bedroom. That means iPhones, iTablets, iWhatever, Androids, whatever type of device you have, out of the bedroom. There is simply no place for it. Not only are these devices highly stimulating, but they also provide light signals that have direct effects on the brain signaling that it's time for sleep. And so this goes for yourself, for your children, for your families. I really recommend that you have a place in the house, ideally away from the bedrooms, where you disconnect at least an hour before bedtime, plug those phones in, and really separate so that you can prepare for a night of sleep. And with that, I'd like to open the floor for questions. So good evening, everyone. Thank you. So we will do our best to get to everyone's questions. Uh, we ask uh, that you raise your hands, and either myself or my colleague Nancy will come around and uh, get to you. Uh, so we're looking here. I've, I'm going to take someone who's very close to me to start off here. Could you comment on the benefits or lack of benefits of taking naps? Who am I? Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, great, great question. There's actually some recent research that just came out about this. The key with naps is, well, there is why are you doing them and how long are you doing them? So there do appear to be some benefits of naps, particularly when they're of short intervals, so 20 to 30 minutes and early enough in the day so they don't in- interfere with your nighttime sleep period. Now, people, there are certain populations that nap because... They just need to nap because they're so excessively exhausted during the day. Generally speaking, um, that can be an indicator of some um, undiagnosed sleep disorder. And so for those populations that are sleeping because they have to, because they simply cannot stay awake, generally naps aren't considered um, as a sign of health because there's usually some underlying condition. But people who can schedule naps, who can use them effectively in their day as sort of a refresher or a cat nap, Generally speaking, um, as long as they don't interfere with your nighttime sleep, there does not appear to be an issue with them. Wendy, we have a call in the middle. Hi, thank you so much for a very interesting presentation. 
I'm just curious about our American culture these days in that it seems to be a virtue if you uh, have less sleep, if you listen to uh, what people have to say who are very successful, or if you read about uh, very wonderful actors or actresses or whatnot, they all get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and do their tea and do their yoga, and it seems like a virtue to not have uh, enough sleep. The one time when I decided that maybe that wasn't such a good idea is when Bill Gates said he thought he needed eight hours, and I thought, if he can do it, it's okay with me. Great point. And, you, you know, you're absolutely right that it's not just the military that considers sleep deprivation a badge of honor. We have a society that has really elevated sleep deprivation as, a, as if it's something to be proud of. Um, and, you know, I think that the only way to uh, kind of uh, disabuse the population of that myth is to raise awareness of the consequences of sleep disturbances um, and to really educate people that, you know, the truth is, uh, humans are notoriously bad at identifying the consequences of sleep deprivation on their own performance. So laboratory studies have shown those same people who say, oh, I can sleep five hours per night and there's no effect on me. Well, the laboratory studies would show very differently. So we've got another question here in the center. Yeah, thank you for your message tonight. I think it's spot on and your recommendations. But it strikes me that... Um, when I was in college, and at least 30 years ago, I had a professor saying exactly the same thing, that America was sleep-deprived. So what will it, what, could you comment on what would it take to actually hear this message for America to actually do something about this? Well, I would say your college professor was probably ahead of his or her time, um, because it's really been in the past 20 years that I think there's been a greater awakening to the importance of sleep, um, and that's in part due to the burgeoning of research showing that sleep problems are associated with so many um, physical and mental health consequences. Um, it is also true that the problem of um, sleep deprivation and insufficient sleep has actually increased uh, across the population over the past 30 years. So the problem does appear to be worsening, even if it was pretty bad 30 years ago. Um, and, and again, I think the best that we can do is to continue to highlight the role of sleep in our health and functioning and to change the messaging about around sleep, just like we do in the military, that sleep is an operational imperative. It's not something to be sacrificed. And at at the, in the civilian sector for us all to recognize that sleep is going to enhance our functioning and our performance at whatever uh, field we're in rather than something to be sacrificed. You know, just it's interesting, you know, we have a term for pulling an all-nighter because we sacrifice sleep. It's a fundamental biological need. Notice that there's no similar word for that for skipping meals because you had too much work to do. You know, who does that? You know, so we feel that sleep is the one sacrificial lamb that we can just get rid of. And uh, so I think that there's time to uh, change that attitude. Wendy, we have a call on your left. I really enjoy this talk. Well, I sleep with two dogs, and they weigh 140 pounds. Are there any studies showing advantages or disadvantages of of the tens of millions of people that sleep with their pets? You know, you're not going to like what I have to say, I'm afraid. So, and as a clinician... This is a challenge for me because, yes, there is research to show that you have an animal in the bed. It is not a good idea for sleep. Animals make noises. They have dreams. They lick themselves. They, I have an animal myself. Um, 
On the other hand, I also recognize in my work on social environments and the need for safety and security at night, I know how critically important animals are uh, to our sense of well-being. Um, and so it's a challenge because um, I, as much as my clinician's hat would say, you got to get this animal out of the bed, I think you have to consider, well, is your sleep disturbed? <laughs> If your sleep is disturbed, well, then you need to be more restrictive about your sleep habits. If you're sleeping just great and you're functioning well, um, well, then, and if you're really achieving the benefits of that closeness uh, with a loved other, um, even a four-legged one, which, you know, there are profound benefits of pets, by the way, for health. So, um, so, so I, I guess it really depends on how well you're sleeping. We have another question here in the center. Uh, Thanks again. Uh, There are many studies which show what food and water does in terms of uh, anatomy, physiology, biochemistry. What studies are there for similar effects with sleep? What does sleep do? That's that's a great question. And there is actually extensive research showing that sleep has profound implications across virtually every physiological system, ranging from our immunity um, to inflammatory responses, which are directly implicated in um, uh, cardiovascular risk, as well as other hormonal responses that are related to the stress system, and also um, obe- uh, appetite-regulating hormones, which could also contribute to the obesity epidemic. So that research is really growing and strong. Right in the middle. Yeah. You know, Roger Federer sleeps famously like 10 or 12 hours a night. And so I'm wondering, I've always felt that men sleep more easily and longer and better than women. And particularly after babies come in too. I can remember, you know, being waken, waking up like that, and my husband sleeping with the phone ringing next to his head. So what's that? Sure. So if I could just repeat. So the, the question is generally about um, gender differences in sleep, and it's actually something that I'm asked to comment on quite a bit. Um, so it's somewhat paradoxical. So women are actually better sleepers than men um, when you look at objective measures of sleep. On the other hand, women are twice as likely to have insomnia than men. Uh, which is a subjective experience of the inability um, to sleep uh, soundly or, or, or well. Um, and regarding the point about you know mothers of infants who can wake up at the drop of a hat, where, whereas fathers will sleep soundly through, my guess is that there's you know clearly a biological um, or evolutionary basis for that. That and it may also explain this discrepancy between uh, women generally being better sleepers and being actually at lesser risk for other sleep disorders such as sleep apnea, but subjectively having poorer quality sleep. I think. Women's brains are just hardwired to be simultaneously awake and asleep. And new studies with, um, with, uh, that, that study brain waves at, at night, um, really actually show this with women that you can be simul, it's, you know, it's not like a light switch to the, that just goes off and that, you know, sleep is not a coma. Um, and so actually you can show, while well, the same time your brain waves are showing, um, indicators of sleeping, you can also show indicators of wakefulness. And I think from an evolutionary basis, that would make sense that women need to be vigilant at nighttime, um, to care for in- infants. So we've got a question here. Thank you. Um, my question is about uh, circling back to the previous question about 
sleep and leadership. Uh, in this case, I, I wanted to kind of ask you about presidential leadership and not to get too partisan, but, you know, we famously heard that President Clinton would sleep only a couple, two, three hours a night that at Yale Law School, a professor once taught him, don't sleep. It, you, you know, you'll, you'll waste away your life if you sleep. And from there on out, he was sleeping a little. And then we had former President Bush, who famously went to bed probably around 8.30 or 9 every night. Um, and, you know, recently with President Obama, we've heard, uh, you know, over the last couple of years that he was prescribed Ambien occasionally as needed. I guess my question to you is what does sleep style or sleep behavior events about leadership in general to you? Hmm. So I'm going to try to address this scientifically, <laughs> which will be challenging. Um, I guess what I can say, and I actually, I think I remember that Bill Clinton might have changed his tune. Um, I, I actually remember a quote that I think he sort of learned the error in his ways. Um, but I, I will say that um, there's always the, you know, attitude in leadership, and there have always been sort of historically famous quotes that suggest that the highest level in any field um, are, you know, short sleepers. And, and so there, you know, and we do know that there are individual differences in the need for sleep. The magic number for most adults is around eight hours. We also know that only about 2% of the population actually qualify as short sleepers. So whether, you know, Bill Clinton and every other leader who has said that they only need four hours of sleep per night, whether they are truly short sleepers or whether they are just really good actors and, you know, fooling themselves as to the consequences of uh, sleep deprivation on their own health. Um, So, you know, I I can't say for sure what it says about leadership. Um, I think it's more um, of a mythology that we've created that and and becomes something to be modeled uh, that to be a leader, uh, one must sacrifice sleep. And I think that's just simply an attitude that is incorrect, not uh, borne out by science, and that we as a society need to move away from. We've got another question here all the way to your right, all the way over here. Wondering about a solid eight hours. When I wake up and turn over or make a pit stop, uh, if I'm in bed for those eight hours, I consider that's a, that's a pretty good night's sleep. Other people say it has to be uninterrupted. Where do you come in on that? Well, that puts a lot of pressure on your sleep, which, which is not necessarily a good thing for sleep. And I guess what I can say to you is that um, sleep is a dynamic state. It is totally normal to wake up in the middle of the night. What can be problematic is the inability to fall back to sleep. So if you're awake in bed for extended periods, generally 15 to 30 minutes or more um, at at any given awakening, that's where I would kind of return to that tip about keeping the bed uh, for sleep and sex and get out of bed because you're not sleeping at that time. You're likely thinking about the fact that you're not sleeping, um, and that can become a habit um, that would perpetuate sleep problems instead of dealing with the fact that we all sleep is very variable. Um, So I think it's important to not put so much pressure on that it has to be a solid eight hours per night. Okay, we have a question here on your left. Yes, thank you for your information. Um, given the trend in our country of businesses now maintaining hours 24-7 and our global economy where businesses are functioning with different time zones, how does this fit together with people's shifts, with people's work style, and what would be your recommendations for people in those positions? 
Yes. Well, I mean, I think, you know, we depend on shift workers. There's no way around it. I mean, we live in a 24-7 world. We must have people working at all hours of the clock. Um, That said, we know that there are consequences of shift work, not only for sleep, uh, but also for uh, long-term health. Um, I think in terms of Specifically regarding sleep, I think that, again, we need to make sure that policies um, are um, aligned with, with sleep science and that will provide sufficient rest and recovery periods. If you're going to make somebody um, you know, work through the night, that there's a period of recovery that's sufficient uh, for them to um, return to their functioning. Um, I would love to say that I, I think that we can be, do better at making shift work schedules um, more consistent because really the worst type of shift is the rotating schedule because you never get used to it. Um, and then I also think that it's important, back to the social environments, to pay more attention to the implications of shift work uh, and the consequences for shift workers families and in their social lives, because often shift workers will come home and um, say the, a nurse who's, who works the night shift, she doesn't just get to sleep when she comes home. She has children often to take care of. So I think we have to be cognizant of the fact that, um, you know, you can't just flip your sleep to the, your off hours because you participate in a world that is generally operating on daylight. Um, so I, I think it's a, it's a big challenge, and I think we have to be more cognizant of the comprehensive nature of how shift work affects um, these individuals' lives. We've got a question here in the front row. Now, we had an event uh, two and a half days ago that caused probably everybody in the audience to be wake up a little grumpier. Uh, is there Let's talk any- about daylight savings. <laughs> Is there any chance of getting that thing voided in the future? <laughs> I don't know. They haven't asked me about that. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I think it's a pretty entrenched policy. Uh, um, but what I can tell you, uh, if you can't change it at the policy level, you can do your best at the individual level. And, uh, you know, generally speaking, it takes most people um, who, who do suffer the consequences of daylight savings about a week. You should be realigned. You can help the process along by trying to get as much light as you can in the morning. And that's hard when it's pitch black out at 6 a.m. So use artificial light until the sun comes up. Get outside if you can, including if you're at your job, either get by a window or get outside for just a dose of some sunlight because that'll help set your internal biological clock. And also be mindful of light at nighttime as, you know, as much as it's lovely to have uh, light in the evenings, um, it really makes it hard to fall asleep at night when you're getting so much light signal, um, which has a direct impact on the... Like a television is another uh, artificial source of light that can also uh, influence our sleep. Wendy, there's a question on your left. Um, a two-parter, <clears throat> excuse me, to follow up on these previous two questions, what's the role of circadian rhythms? And secondly, what is the uh, efficacy or advisability of sleep medications? Okay. So regarding circadian rhythms, um, there are basically two processes that control our sleep. The first our circadian or our internal biological clocks, which are clearly implicated in the effects of daylight savings as well as in shift work. So this really just is the kind of internal mechanism in our brain, which um, tells us when we should be awake and what time we should be asleep. And there are actually clock genes, the 
you know, circadian level genes in virtually every cell in our body. So these circadian factors um, have pervasive effects on our health. Um, the other factor that controls our sleep is um, our homeostatic sleep drive, which is simply how long we've been awake. And so the longer you've been awake, uh, essentially the sleepier you should be. And our circadian system and our homeostatic system ideally work in concert so that at the time it's bedtime, for most of us at night, if we're on a circadian aligned schedule, we should be sleepy enough to fall asleep and stay asleep. And then our circadian signal for awakening kicks in uh, in the early morning hours to, to wake us up. The second question regarding sleep medications, uh, there is efficacy um, data for um, many classes of sleep medications, particularly the newer um, class, which are the non-benzodiazepine receptor agonists, your Ambien's, your Lunesta's, et cetera. Um, not that I'm recommending any of them. Um, and But that, you know, there is efficacy data that they do seem to work for treating insomnia. But what's also important is that they are as effective, not more effective, than our evidence-based behavioral treatments, uh, such as cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Uh, not only are they equivalent in efficacy, but of course, behavioral treatments have many fewer side effects, if any, as compared to the medications, all of which have some side effects. And behavioral treatments are also more enduring. So there's no evidence to suggest that if you take a sleeping pill for a certain number of nights that it has any benefits for your sleep when you stop taking the pill, whereas a behavioral strategy is giving you the skills to retrain how you sleep at night, um, and that can have enduring um, benefits for your sleep. We have another question back here towards your right here. Um, what have you been looking at in terms of first sleep and second sleep, which was common for humans well before we had all the technology and electricity that we have today? That's a really interesting um, area of research that I'm actually not engaged in, but um, I have a colleague who wrote a really uh, wonderful book. He's um, a professor, a history professor, actually, at uh, Virginia Tech University, and in it, he describes the history of sleep, uh, wherein you know, the pre-industrial age, um, we didn't expect, by the way, to have a consolidated eight hours of sleep per night. We had these um, sleep periods, which were called first period, second period. And it suggests that perhaps as humans, we didn't necessarily evolve to have, the, you know, a solid eight hours per night. Um, and, and again, before the advent of light, uh, or artificial light at least, um, people would, you know, go to sleep when there just wasn't you know, any more light around. Um, but then they would sleep for a few hours and then wake up in the middle of the night, you know, have sex, engage in some other low light activity, uh, and then fall back to sleep. Um, and so in terms of the implications for our sleep today, um, I, I think what it relates to, what I, where I find it most interesting is that particularly in, uh, my, in when, I, when I treat pa patients with insomnia, I think that part of the strategy is to recognize that sleep is dynamic. And, you know, we have, we, we do, we are in a society uh, where, you know, the normal pattern of sleep is to sleep a consolidated period. Um, that seems to work for most. It doesn't have to be the pattern that works for all. Um, and, you know, if you recognize that there might be an evolutionary basis for waking in the middle of the night, maybe we can reduce that worry that, oh my gosh, there's something desperately wrong if we do happen to wake up. And then actually just kind of being okay with being awake will allow the body to naturally fall back to sleep. Okay, we have a question in the middle here. 
Well, you know what? I just curious. I was thinking of the astronauts who are weightless, and if they're in a low Earth orbit, maybe every couple hours, it's day and night, and we're used to a twenty-four hour day and night cycle. Uh, what do you? Is there anything you have for them to to help them sleep? I I just can't figure out how they do it. Well. No, I don't, but um, because that's also not my specific area of research. But one of my dear colleagues from the University of Pittsburgh uh, really uh, kind of pioneered the work um, with um, sleep in astronauts. And uh, in, our, in the former laboratory that I was in um, at the University of Pittsburgh, we have um, a special room where many of these studies were conducted, which, I mean, what really happens for astronauts um, is that, you know, they have no light cue, no external light cue, so it really can disrupt their circadian rhythms. And so we have a special um, part of our of, of the laboratory that is, you know, devoid of any light cues and where he would conduct these studies um, that that showed that actually helped us understand the influence of circadian rhythms that even without light cues, our bodies do tend to run on a 24-hour schedule. And over time, the astronauts would sort of adjust to a nighttime schedule even uh, when they didn't have any exposure to light. Very cool research. We have a question over here on your right. A question uh, with reference to what you just said. What is the efficacy and the long-term side effects with melatonin uh, magnesium and valerian root, and have you used that in your studies? Um, the efficacy regarding melatonin, um, I would say, is limited. Um, I, you know, there have been only a handful of studies so far looking at uh, sort of the natural derivative melatonin as well as um, remeltion, which is um, more the synthetic. Um, and I, I think that the evidence would say that they have small-ish effects, if at all. Although clinically, I found um, with, with some clients really uh, find that they're very helpful. Um, the use of melatonin also, um, you know, there are two uses for melatonin. Most people tend to use it as a sedative or as a sleeping pill, but actually what they're more effective at doing is to help shift our circadian rhythm. So it's actually another strategy to use uh, when adjusting to time changes, um, but you don't take it right before bedtime. You actually take it um, earlier in the evening to try to bring night um, uh, earlier, uh, sort of advance the night um, if you're kind of out of uh, alignment with um, with the daylight schedule. Um, regarding the other valerian root and magnesium, I know that these are gaining popularity, and frankly, I am not um, aware of a solid scientific evidence base for either one of them, although, um, you know, I, I do get asked about that quite a bit, and I have to say that, you know, I think the evidence base is certainly limited at this point. Uh, and in terms of side effects, one, you know, melatonin right now, it does not appear, there are no significant side effects of melatonin, although I think it's important to uh, be mindful of the doses that are prescribed, given that even at a two milligram dose, which is like the usual uh, dose in a you know, that you buy at a GNC, that's well above the um, sort of endogenous level of melatonin. You know, again, I think people use a lot of strategies to um, help themselves sleep. And, you know, you got to find what works well for you. I'll tell you the 
evidence ba- the strongest evidence base for sleep treatments um, in terms of insomnia or cognitive behavioral therapy um, and medication. Um, and again, you know, other strategies that may work for some, simply, you know, they, if they're working for you, that's wonderful. Um, and as long as they're not uh, counterproductive for your health in other ways, such as use of alcohol, um, I think you have to find what works best for you. We've got a question here in the back. Uh, does, <clears throat> excuse me, does aging among apparently healthy adults cause sleep problems and vice versa, do sleep problems cause aging? (laughs) And or. A lot of my work studies these bidirectional associations, so I really like that. Um, Actually, the research shows that... um, you know, yes, sleep does change as we age. It tends to become um, more fragmented and kind of the distribution of how much kind of uh, rapid eye mo- movement sleep versus non-rapid eye movement sleep, that kind of balance changes to some extent. But actually the research shows that aging itself isn't the factor that leads to uh, significant sleep disturbances that are associated with age. It's really the chronic health conditions that are associated with age that contribute to the sleep disturbances. Uh, There's also evidence to suggest that healthy sleepers seem to be healthy agers. Um, So it does um, suggest that preserving sleep um, throughout aging um, is kind of health protective, uh, both in in terms of physical health and also in terms of brain health. There's really exciting research on the links between sleep and Alzheimer's. We have a question here on on your left. Have there been any studies as to whether there was any effect of having a light snack before you go to sleep? You know... Off the top of my head, I cannot think, uh, I'm not aware of any systematic studies um, that have investigated that. Um, yeah, no, and so, you know, I mean, I think it sort of makes sense that, you know, you, you don't want to go to bed starving um, because you can, you know, that might uh, increase the risk of waking up in the middle of the night. On the other hand, you know, and I think the crucial word, word that you said is a light snack. So, you know, in general, if that's part of your wind-down routine and if it's a light, healthy snack, um, I don't see any problems with that. I don't think that there are going to be, you know, whopping effects of it. But if it works for you and if it's part of your wind-down, it's like having a warm glass of milk. There's some of these behaviors that are just become part of the conditioned response that send the signal to your brain that it's time for sleep. Just make sure that it's not a heavy, carbohydrate, sugar-laden snack. (laughs) So we've got a question here in the back. There's increasing popularity in the wearables that help track sleep. Do you have any information as to their utility, their validity, and can they really track deep sleep and... Great question. So um, regarding wearables, you know, there's all sorts of products on the market that claim that they are, um, you you know, they're wristwatch size devices that measure your sleep, or you can even just have it on your iPhone and put it underneath your pillow and it'll measure your sleep. Um, You know, the short answer is no, they do not measure deep sleep. They do not even measure sleep. They measure inactivity and which... You know, you could be lying in bed, uh, you know, lying and looking at the ceiling, and that device thinks that you're asleep. That's as much asleep as if you were really sleeping. So, yeah, that does bother me that they claim to be measuring deep sleep, which can only be measured uh, via uh, brain activity. Um, That said, I think that there's a a place for them, and this movement towards monitoring 
one's health behaviors. We know that um, if you b- monitor any health behavior, there's a mild benefit. Um, just like if you uh, have a dietary recall and you um, log what you've eaten during the day, there's a mild effect that is, seems to be beneficial for kind of healthy e- eating. Similarly, just having that data, even though, you know, I don't think it's certainly a, a gross measure. It is not measuring um, sleep architecture, which is an, which would fall under deep sleep. But it can help you understand, well, on average, over the course of the week, I had a very variable sleep schedule. One night I went to bed at 2 a.m. The next night I went to bed at 10 p.m. One night I was waking up, you know, and such variability is important to identify. And then you can also look at uh, whether it seemed like it was a not such a good night of sleep. You can th- use that to introspect and think about, okay, what behaviors was I engaging in that might have um, influenced that? So I think that there's a place for them. They can kind of give you a metric for gauging how you're sleeping over time, but they're not measuring deep sleep. Okay, we have a question here. Okay, so a question in two parts. Um, one, is there such a thing as too much sleep? And the second one, um, uh, depression is often linked with uh, sleeplessness, uh, but it's also sometimes linked to uh, sleeping, oversleeping, simply because of the way that um, melatonin and serotonin work as neurotransmitters in the brain. I was just wondering if you could like elaborate a little bit on how, how that works. Okay, I, I, I'll give it my best. So yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, the large-scale um, epidemiologic studies that have demonstrated um, that short sleep duration is associated with increased risk for morbidity and mortality. Um, also, there is also evidence that excessively long sleep generally, um, and don't get scared by this, but generally... Um, you know, nine hours or more per night on average in these large-scale surveys that have been conducted. Um, and what, we actually have better laboratory evidence for the mechanism, the physiological mechanisms that would explain why short sleep is associated with negative health consequences. The jury's still out about why excessively long sleep, and it's excessively long in our society, um, why this is also seems to be associated uh, with increased morbidity and mortality. It is likely due to the fact that, again, you know, given that most of us aren't even sleeping eight hours per night, the folks that are regularly sleeping um, more than nine hours per night, it's likely that they already have some undiagnosed condition. And again, if you are a long sleeper, please don't accept that I'm saying that you should go run to your doctor. I mean, because again, this is on a population level. Uh, The second factor regarding the links, I think if I'm getting this right, um, between depression and sleep. I mean, as I said, actually, depression is a great example and um, sleep disturbances are a key symptom of depression, but they're also a key symptom of virtually every known mental health disorder in the um, Diagnostic and Statistic Manual for Psychiatric Disorders, uh, which is the Bible. um, You know, sleep disturbances will show up basically on every page. Um, So, and in fact, for a long time, um, one of the reasons why sleep disturbances weren't treated was because we just thought it was sort of the, you know, the middle child. It was just, it went along with the major um, uh, psychiatric condition. And with that assumption, there was also the belief that if you just treat the depression, for instance, the sleep problems will just remit. Um, and frankly, that's not true. Sleep problems are among the most intractable symptoms, even with successful treatment um, for uh, depression, for instance. And we've also shown that sleep problems will predict treatment response 
in depression. And finally, studies have shown that, that actually if you directly target sleep problems, um, you can also uh, decrease depressive symptoms. So th- it does appear to be a bidirectional link. And we also know that longitudinally, the presence of sleep problems at baseline uh, can predict the onset of depression. It can also predict suicide even after controlling for the influence of depression. So it's not just that sleep problems are a symptom of, they are also a risk factor for. So we have time for just one more question. If uh, any of you, I'm sorry that we could not get to everyone, but uh, Wendy will be staying after, and you're welcome to come up and ask her. If so we have one more here. Uh, what is the current understanding of the function of dreams? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, I would say... Generally, the current understanding is that it's an important of dreams is that it's a time of emotional processing, and it also seems to be critically important for memory consolidation. Um, I don't do a whole lot of work with dreams except with um, veterans who have uh, nightmares, um, and it does appear that kind of the experience of trauma and somehow gets really locked in, and the fact that, you know, I think this links to the memory consolidation piece that, um, you know, that trauma has to be replayed over and over um, at night, and that's part of the brain's way of processing that. Um, So those are sort of the key areas that are under investigation now. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.